Welcome to International Tax Bites. This week, me, Graham Jackson, an English and Gibraltar solicitor with Hassan's international law firm in Gibraltar, and Harriet Brown, an English barrister and Jersey advocate with Old Square Chambers in London, will be discussing the difficult and amorphous concept of domicile. This is a conversation and no substitute for full advice in the relevant jurisdictions. So Harriet, here we are, it's episode three. And today, I think we're going to talk about domicile, the concept of domicile. That's something that's different from the concept of residence that we spoke about in the last two episodes. Uh, Could you explain exactly what domicile is as a start? Okay, so domicile is it is not dissimilar to residence while not being the same at all. And it's another one of these slightly woolly concepts that we use to determine when and where we tax people. Um, it's also another form of belonging, um, if I can put it that way. For those who've listened to our earlier podcasts, I describe residency as sort of being a mixture of features of where you belong. Um, and those who've listened previously will remember that that turns quite a lot on how long you spend in a country in a tax year. However, domicile is more of a permanent concept. It's used primarily in tax for two purposes. And again, like residence, it does have a non-tax context, but that's not for us to talk about. But in tax, it's generally used for one of two reasons. The first is People who are not domiciled in a country often receive preferential tax treatment, which is encourages to encourage them to settle on a temporary basis there and spend their money there and pay some tax there, but not as much as somebody who is resident there. And the other basis of taxation that seems that tends to rely on domicile is inheritance taxes and gift taxes, things like that. So we tend to look at domicile when we're taxing people on their death. So is this a, because we are called international tax bites, is this a concept which is universal across jurisdictions or do we see it focused mainly in common law? I I know that England, uh, the UK has the concept of domicile. I think you were alluding to what are known as res non doms or resident non domiciles status in the UK when you were talking about people who move temporarily to a country. There are other schemes around the world, but that's the big one that jumps to my mind. So is domicile a concept which you would find in other jurisdictions? Uh, Yes, my understanding is it's found in quite a lot of jurisdictions. It's used in international treaties, though, of course, they tend not to be um, income tax treaties. They would tend to be gift tax or, or wealth tax type treaties. So it's not as commonly used. And of course, you don't see as many capital taxes treaties, but it is a concept that, 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 is, that is used broadly, broadly around the world. Just to, uh, w- when we spoke yes, uh, last week, even not yesterday, last week about uh, the different residence tests, we talked about the French residence test and the French residence test was written on the sheet that we used in terms of domicile. So I just think, for some jurisdictions, it may be something that people need to be cautious about, just to flag that yeah. these words are not always used precisely in translation. No, they're not. And uh, that, that's a very good point to make, Graham, that sometimes the concepts are, or the words are used interchangeably in certain jurisdictions. So it is possible that a jurisdiction might not have a separate separation between domicile and residence, but quite, quite a lot do. And of course, an awful lot of the common law world will do. 
Yeah, certainly um, the common law jurisdiction, Commonwealth jurisdiction would, would acknowledge that, Australia and New Zealand and the other Commonwealth jurisdictions. So can you give us any more detail around the difference between domicile and residence, how you would be able to, is there a conceptual difference? There is a conceptual difference. Domicile tends to look more at a permanent and lasting intention. So th there are two concepts of domicile in English law, common law domicile and then deemed domicile. What we're mostly going to be talking about is common law domicile because that's the proper concept of domicile. And that common law domicile tends to rely on the idea of where you have your, where, where you are rooted. So to go through, there, there are, just to complicate it further, there are several types of domicile. You can have a domicile of origin, you can have a domicile of choice, and you can have a domicile of dependence. A domicile of origin is generally, the domicile of your, in the UK anyway, is generally the domicile of your father when you were born, unless your parents weren't married, one of the few distinctions still in English law between married and unmarried couples, and then this is the domicile of your mother. Now you have a domicile of origin until you and you have a domicile of origin until you are able to uh, gain a domicile of choice, and you get a domicile of choice by being resident in a place and having an intention to remain there permanently or indefinitely. And I'm sure you can guess what I'm going to say next, Graham, which is there's an awful lot of case law around what constitutes yes. permanently or indefinitely and an awful lot of sort of criteria that one might consider for domicile, which are, of course, different to the um, criteria one might consider for residence. Say, for example, the other thing that I should say before I try and explain those criteria, domicile, you can only have one domicile, so you can't be domiciled in France and Spain, you would be domiciled in France or Spain, and domicile is sticky, your domicile of origin is sticky, so it's quite hard to get rid of a domicile of origin. It's much easier to lose a domicile of choice. And that's something that we see in the case law. So if you're looking at acquiring a domicile of choice, some of the factors that we'd look at to acquire a domicile of choice, you have to have the two things that I've mentioned, actual residence in that place, but also an intention to remain there permanently or indefinitely. So you might well be resident there if you were on a short-term work contract to say maybe two or three years, that might render you resident there. But if you had no intention of staying beyond the, the length of your contract, then you wouldn't be domiciled there by choice. So what, I think what you're saying is that domicile is more about an internal state of affairs, your intention, the, your intention to remain in a place permanently, whereas residence is about, um, we talked about uh, day counts and things like that. Day counts don't have any impact on domicile because that's about your internal feelings, almost, your intention to remain, whereas residence is a measure of what you do. Yes, so the only way that a day count would have a, an impact is if you weren't, re weren't resident somewhere by reference to a day count, because you have to be both resident there and, and have the intention there. Right. So the residence part is usually the easy part to figure out. The intention is more difficult. And of course, we're talking about individual domicile at the moment. And a lot of the factors that we look at for individual domicile and a lot of proving your domicile will go to, of course, 
evidence. And so we look at factors to evidence of a person's domicile and people look at, look at a, a diverse range of factors to try and evidence somebody's intention. They include things like having family there, having club memberships, having employment there. People use it, it, I think it's a joke now really, but people used to advise you to have a burial plot somewhere mm. that you wanted to have a residence, uh, sorry, a domicile. I always, find, I always find that very funny. I mean, like who buys a, there aren't many people who buy a burial plot apart from people who want to show their domicile. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, quite, yes. It's, um, I, I, I'm not sure that, that that really would be that helpful. So really, in terms of showing an intention to acquire a domicile of choice, there's going to be two things. You are going to be looking at severing ties with the previous country, so that it doesn't look like you've got an intention to return. But you're also going to be looking at actually being properly established there, having a home there, having a family life there. You might have children in school there. You might have a job there. You might be a member of a sailing club or a rowing club. All of these things would go to domicile. And of course, those things aren't a necessary component of domicile, but they might well evidence your intention to be there in the long term. Yeah, so it's, this is, I think this is the thing that um, is so difficult for the concept of domicile for, that I see with clients anyway, is because what we're trying to do is we're trying to work out what somebody feels, which is, difficult and their, what their intention is um then you need to look at how they behave and yes i mean joining clubs may well be a piece of evidence if you're the kind of person that joins clubs but if you're not the kind of person that joins clubs it's no evidence other than someone's told you to join a club um so it, you you need to have a, a a real feeling of um what that person's lifestyle is like to truly understand what kind of evidence would be relevant to that person I think that's a really good point and evidence is one of the things that I emphasise to people who are re relying on having acquired a domicile of choice because the other thing about having acquired a domicile of choice is quite often one only has to argue about it after the person whose domicile it is has unfortunately died in the so you quite often arguing about it in the context in the UK of inheritance tax that can cause real issues because often people don't vocalise their intentions particularly or write them down. It's just sort of there. And it can then be very difficult to get evidence of their intentions, particularly if they were elderly when they died. And you might find that all of their friends and relatives are also fairly elderly and may not be in a position to give evidence or even recall what might have been said or done. So in my experience, one of the main um, pieces of evidence that is used is uh, having a home available for use in the country that you have left and are are losing the domicile of so if you maintain a property you don't rent it out then that indicates or is seem to indicate that you intend to go back there yes that's certainly a a a sticky factor isn't it as i said your domicile of origin is sticky and we'd already discussed needing to sever ties with your with, with your country of origin to sort of evidence that you have an intention to remain permanently or indefinitely somewhere else. And certainly if you keep your home and it's available to you at a moment's notice, then that seems like a fairly good indicator that you don't intend to remain permanently where you are. Exactly. And so just to loop us back to the last episode, because that's always good. Um, it, we talked, didn't we, about the 
common law residence test that preceded the statutory residence test in UK. This is very similar. And one of the problems that we have, even you and I that, on, that, that deal with these things regularly, explaining something which is essentially, what does it feel like? What does it look like? Um, and it's a case by case analysis. We can't give hard and fast rules for clients. And that's very frustrating for the clients and for us as well. Uh, and I, do you agree that that's generally the problem? I absolutely do agree. And domicile, as with residents and particularly the former residents as common law residence test is a very fact based analysis. And so it is difficult to give hard and fast rules where there are where, where something is very heavily fact based like this. So it is a matter of looking into it on an individual basis. And one of the things that does worry me is when I come across advisors who will say, oh, you just need to do X, Y, and Z to show, which is a complete oversimplification of what is not a complicated concept, but a complicated concept to apply to real life. Yes, I think that the, as ever, um, if, you are attempting to work out where the boundary is and staying half an inch on the side that suits you, you will undoubtedly get it wrong. And you should take the proper steps and actually move and really live the life of somebody that's moved to wherever you want uh, to, I, to adopt a domicile. I think that really highlights what domicile is about because with domicile, you can't pretend to move you can't pretend to go because it's about your intention. You have to intend to be there permanently and indefinitely. And I should say, you can intend to be somewhere permanently and indefinitely solely because it has a tax advantage. That won't stop you changing your domicile, but it has to be an intention to remain there permanently or indefinitely. Yeah. And you can't break that, really. You can't step out for 10 years, say, oh, that's it, I've satisfied the test, I'm going back. If that's your intention on the day you leave, you never acquire the new domicile. Precisely. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You actually have to move. So when I'm, I moved, uh, people can probably tell from my accent, I'm not originally from Gibraltar. When I moved to Gibraltar, I moved to Gibraltar to spend the rest of my life here. I didn't move for, uh, for, for tax purposes. So it's, that's the real kind of movement. And I want to relocate. I love this place and I want to go there. That's the way to change. That's the way that domicile changes. I think uh, more than Oh, there's a plan and I'm going to make sure that I've ticked the boxes but you know I'm always going to go back that's changing your domicile as part of a plan for tax purposes would be very difficult unless there was a corollary other purpose um so is domicile simply an individual concept or do corporates and entities have domicile as well there is a concept of corporate domicile, which is simply where the company is registered um, or, or the place of incorporation. It doesn't normally matter for tax purposes, though it, it can arise in some rare circumstances. So theoretically, for example, uh, a UK resident foreign incorporated company could be deemed domiciled in the UK for inheritance tax purposes because that provision refers to a person rather than an individual and a person includes a company. Okay. But in practice, it's not, not an important concept. It does exist though. Uh, it, I have a Gibraltar example. Oh, brilliant, sorry. I yeah. have a Gibraltar example. So we have um, three 
as we talked in the very first uh, session, we have a territorial scope taxation system, and that is modified in three cases. That's modified in the case of intercompany interest and royalties and something called non-trade income from movable property, which is essentially leasing things out when leasing things out isn't your main trade. So that's the way companies work. They, those three exceptions are taxed based on the registration of the entity. So if the, oh, it, sorry, it's deemed to be accrued and derived in Gibraltar if the entity is registered in Gibraltar. So a, I suppose we could reformulate that as a Gibraltar domiciled entity or company is deemed to, to source its income from those three things within Gibraltar. So there is a live example, though we use the word registered, but I'm very glad that we've got a live example of how domicile is important for a corporate. Well, that, that, that's, that's, that is a fantastic example, because the other thing I was going to say was uh, James Kessler QC in his book, Taxation of Non-Residents and Foreign Domiciliaries, actually says we should just really refer to where a company is registered or incorporated rather than its domicile, because they are the same thing and therefore you're not importing one concept to the other. So I think Gibraltar's got it the right way around. Excellent. <laughs> so um, you talked originally around maybe there were some treaties that because obviously we talked about the model taxation treaty the OECD model previously and that's about income and capital and that talks about that is only applicable to indiv individuals and entities persons which are resident in one or other of the contracting states are it does domicile impact on treaties in any way there are certainly in the UK there is a small number of capital taxes treaties, the most notable one being the one with India, for example, where domicile is relevant because I said, and I regret saying it now, you can only have one domicile. Under English law, you can only have one domicile, but your domicile might, you might be treated as domiciled um, in England under English law and say um, in India under Indian law. And so in that capital taxes treaty, domicile is used to there is a domicile uh, tiebreak test and okay. domicile is used to determine where your where your assets are solely taxable now the uk only has four treaties in that format as i said the indian one being the one that i come across most commonly and modern capital taxes treaties tend not to refer to the concept of domicile in quite the same way it doesn't have quite the same importance so it certainly doesn't have the same importance on the international stage as residence does as a concept. Nonetheless, it's a very important one for domestic taxation. Okay, so I think um, that covers the, the main points that we wanted to talk about. But in, in summary, I think what we're saying is that domicile is a, it's relevant for inheritance tax in the UK. It's a live tax, international tax concept, but it is definitely secondary to residence. It is, there's just one other circumstance um, in which, well, one other concept we should mention, and that's the deemed domicile concept, because you'll recall I said there were two primary ways that it was relevant to tax. The first was inheritance tax. The second was in giving this preferential income and capital gains tax position to domiciles. And in the UK, as you say, we have the resident but non-domiciled regime, where very broadly speaking, if you have foreign income and gains and you are not UK domiciled, you only pay income tax or capital gains tax on gains or income that you remit. Now, that's far too complicated a topic to go into it in any more detail today. 
But the one thing to remember about that regime and indeed the inheritance tax regime in the UK is that in addition to being domiciled on a common law basis, when you have been in the UK, resident in the UK for 15 out of 20 years, you are considered deemed domiciled for those regimes. So you're treated as if you're domiciled, even if on a common law basis you're not, which is sort of the UK scooping up people who aren't here permanently or indefinitely, but who have been, who are here long term. So it's like a backstop date. It is, yes. And how, does that work if you leave the UK? Does that same 15 out of 20 year rule apply to a lever? So a UK person that leaves for 15 out of 20 years, will they say, oh, you're deemed non-domicile? No, it's, it's, only, it's only a deemed domicile. The way that it catches you as a lever is that if you have become deemed domicile, you will have to be out of the UK for the right amount of time. And I'm being very careful saying that because I find the calculation difficult, but you'll have to be out of the UK for the right number of tax years for your um, UK deemed domicile to fall away. And if you're, a, if you're a, a UK domicile of origin, if I remember correctly, and you acquire a domicile, it was all part of the same uh, amendments, the legislation, wasn't it? If the UK domicile of origin leaves, acquires... A domicile of choice outside and then returns they will be deemed to have been domiciled within the UK at all time. So yes you can be what's called a formally domiciled resident which is a a form of deemed domicile and what that means is if you were if you had a UK domicile of origin and you come back even if you've acquired a domicile of choice you're immediately UK domiciled you don't get the 15 out of 20 year rule and you also get some other punitive tax charges unfortunately and that's um, to stop people basically doing what we talked about before leaving doing things and then going back and acting as if they'd never been from the uk in the first place exactly so it's it's it's, it's very uk centric this concept isn't it from what we've talked about it's very active actively important within the uk system i think it's less important around the world domestically though what you're talking about with treaties would obviously be important. Yes, I think it, it, is, a, it is a concept that the UK puts a lot of weight on, uh, primarily because it does have a great deal of wealthy non-doms, as we call them, who um, paying tax on a remittance basis encourages them to come here, but we still get some tax. So yes, I think it is an important concept in the UK and it is used in some other domestic systems around the world as a basis for sort of a preferential income tax regime. But no, it is, I think it, it's not, it wouldn't be fair to say it is a UK concept only, but yes, it is one that's very important in the UK and is probably less used elsewhere. Yeah. Okay, so Harriet, that's been great. Thank you very much for your time again today. It's, it's always useful and interesting to listen to you. In summary, um, domicile is important. It's not as important on a day-to-day -day basis as residence, because that's about what happens today with your tax today, whether you're taxed on your worldwide income or not. Whereas, but domicile generally, by the sounds of it, is something that that somebody else bothers about when you die. <laughs> that can be the case. Um, so, but obviously, those who are actively planning need to consider what we've said about the reality of uh, of their moves. They can't rely on a checklist they can't rely on on just doing five things and it being okay somebody else 
will have to clear up a big mess if uh, domicile is, is done wrong and nothing beats proper advice. Precisely, Graham. <laughs> this has been International Tax Bites, a podcast about concepts and issues in international taxation. It is simply a conversation and no substitute for well-qualified advice. We hope you enjoyed it.